Are you ready for the most ridiculous internet sports show you have ever seen? Welcome to React, home of the most outrageous and hilarious videos the web has to offer. So join me, Rocky Theus, and my co-host, Raiders Pro Bowl defensive end, Max Crosby, as we invite your favorite athletes, celebrities, influencers, entertainers in for an episode of games, laughs, and of course, the funniest reactions to the wildest web clips out there. Catch Reacts on YouTube, and that is Reacts, R-E-A-X-X. Don't miss it. This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Regressing to the mean since 2015, it's the Hockey Pediocast. With your host, Dmitry Filipovich. Welcome to the Hockey Pediocast. My name is Dmitry Filipovich, and joining me is my good buddy Craig Hussins. Craig, what's going on, man? It's been it's been so long since I've had you on the show. I know. I just I can't believe you waited three years to invite me back. What, what was the What did I do wrong in the last episode? That's what I, I don't. I think it was like remember we had that drill guy or something. We had a bunch of uh, we have a bunch of incidents whenever we've had Cousins on the Pediocast. So. <laughs> you know, we good. decided we decided to explore, explore the market, look around, and then uh, we came yeah. back to you during these good. times. Yeah. Well, it's good to be back. Then. Oh, I, you're the perfect guest for this. And all jokes aside, I, um, listen, you, um, and what Sean Gentilly and Max Boltman did the, uh, the rewatch of the 2009 Stanley Cup final game seven on the athletic. And I highly recommend everyone goes check that out. So I thought that I'd been planning on doing this game as the first, uh, edition of my PDO guest rewatchables as well during this quarantine period. And so it was a nice little mix where the game was fresh in your mind and we could, uh, we could dive into it here in, in audio format as well. Yeah, it's it was such a fun exercise, and I, you know it's it's great minds. I guess in this case, steel like because we're both we both I'm sure are fans of what Bill Simmons is doing mm-hmm. with the Rewatchables podcast. And Gentilly and I had been kicking around the concept of doing that on a full sixty, and and then when all of a sudden it's like, oh, we don't have any games to write about. Maybe this is better off as uh you know in for the athletic in print. And it, it made for the the format was interesting. It made for a, a good read. I thought it was like fun and and also kind of. I would say nostalgic, like a lot of moments that we've forgotten. I'm sure you and I will get into here, um, but I'm excited to do it this way too because I think um, I think this this will be a lot of fun. Yeah. So yeah, we're we're uh, as people will notice, the rewatchables is one of my favorite podcasts, and we're shame. I'd like to think of shamelessly borrowing some categories here from them to help guide us. As long um, as they're fine with, <laughs> like I well, had. A- we were, we were laughing because it's like one of the categories in that is, um, what is it, you know, who's at their apex, or apex mountain? Yep. And I'm like, we'll call it uh, who's at their peak, uh, peak yeah. mountain. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, I mean, listen, if the ringer were ever to acknowledge the existence of the NHL, maybe they'd be upset. But uh, I think they'll be fine oh. in this case. <laughs> um, but listen, <laughs> we're, uh, I mean, 
I want to have a kind of like an open casting call as well to listeners because this is the first of many I'm hoping to do on the show. And so, um, if there's any suggestions for different categories or different games, uh, I'm kind of leaving that out for people to, to decide upon. But in the meantime, um, you know, two pieces of homework. One, uh, I want everyone to go and watch this game. It's on YouTube. We're going to provide the link along with this podcast. And I highly recommend it's a good two hour, uh, sort of distraction. And the other is, um, you know, that means you're hopefully staying inside, staying safe, uh, enjoying this game with an adult beverage or any beverage of your choice uh, from the comfort of your home, and you're keeping yourself and those around you safe. So uh, those are the two pieces of homework from from us here at the PDO cast. And with that said, let's uh, let's get into the categories. Here's the first one I've got is where were you when? Um, okay, where good. Were you during this game? I was at this game. So that was, oh, um, oh, nice. yeah. So I, I'm trying to think this is Oh nine. I think I was still at, this is pre ESPN even maybe so either ESPN or the sporting news or, uh, or was national radio there. And in this case, what, so Joe Lewis arena where this game was at, um, the, the press box kind of famously was an afterthought. Like they built the, the arena and then they were like, Oh man, we need a press box. So they basically, you had this tiny, skinny uh, press box that that you know. Even when you were sitting, if anybody walked by, you got you got elbowed in the head constantly, or maybe that was just me. But it, you just were constantly being bumped. It was tiny, and in this case, in a game like this, you had the auxiliary press box because there certainly wasn't room for national media and all that at, at this. So we were they basically put boards down over seats, and we were trying to balance laptops on our laps, mixed in essentially with the crowd. Which made for a pretty unbelievable experience like this. It was, um, you know, watching it again and seeing just how loud that crowd was. And, um, you know, especially when you contrast it against how things are now in Detroit, where it's a half empty building and the fans are just patiently waiting for the product to be good again. It was just a reminder, oh, my gosh, of really just how I don't want to say how far they've fallen. But really, that's really, you know, it's just how different things are now for that market. Yeah, I had that actually as a, as one of my things on what age the best was the Detroit crowd for Game 7. Oh my it was, gosh, it was I awesome. Mean, I, I guess I've been so kind of uh, desensitized over the past couple of years and watching the Red Wings games at Little Caesars Arena. And, and, and you know, in the fans of the fans, like it's not like the product itself has given them much to cheer for, especially this season. But um, yeah, the, the fans were just crazy. I mean... It was uh, it, every time the Red Wings would score. Um, I know they only scored the one time in this game seven, but throughout that series, it was just yeah. it, was, it was hectic. You could just from watching it on YouTube, you could feel like you were in the building. I'm gonna I'm gonna make you feel old here with my uh, where was I when oh, this was okay. um, this game happened. It conflicted with my high school graduation ceremony. <laughs> yeah, and, that's pretty. That's good. That's a good and, one. And uh, so I remember, like, I missed the start of it, walking across the stage, shaking hands with the principal, blah blah. And then afterwards, I remember going with uh, family and some and some friends to a restaurant nearby. And and I just remember, like, I wasn't as into hockey obviously as I am now. Like, I was aware of what was going on, and, and we wanted to kind of see, check out what was going on with the game because we knew the game seven was happening. I just remember people huddled around the TV by the bar, and it felt like something big was happening. But it's so, it was such a different time, right? Because I still wasn't on Twitter. I think I got on Twitter around uh, late 2010, early 2011. And so, um, you know, I, I wasn't like going on there to, to see the reactions of people or, or, or right. just kind of feel like I was part of this community. And it just made me think of how different the viewing experience is now, where like, 
like I have basically, I remember last year watching Bruins Blues game seven. And I'm like, I have like a picture in picture experience where I've got the game up and I've got my tweet deck open and I'm, and I'm like monitoring both just as closely to, to kind of see what's going on and what everyone else is thinking. And so it's just like, it's such a different experience now, obviously 12 years later with all the technology we have. It's crazy. Um, so that, I mean, High school grad, you are making me feel old. I, Max Baltman might have won this category because he's he's a Red Wings speed writer for the Athletic, and I think he said he was thirteen, Jesus. and like he maybe was watching with like his youth hockey team or something, like whatever yeah. it's. And I'm like, oh my gosh, Max, my goodness. I so I definitely feel old, but it, it's it it did it did seem like a long time ago when you and I don't want to jump into other categories too soon, but when you're when you're watching it and it's like, oh, there's Bill Guerin. That's right, Bill Guerin was on that team and you know is now the GM of the Wild and all you know all these former players that have gone on to do other things. Um, it was a reminder of how much time has passed. I feel like Bill Guerin looks better now in 2020 than he did. In this during this 2009 period he's got this like gray wispy beard I don't, I don't know what's going on i felt like uh he was definitely on his last legs as a player i think the time off from from the game has probably done get some good for him i would say everybody on the playing side like those those montages of people's beards and stuff by this point nobody looks good if you're a player yeah. And Rob Ross, he sent happened to send a photo uh, someone got of me and him at this game, like interviewing people uh, on the ice, and I looked like I, I was like bloated and gross, and you know it's it, it's it's a long time on the road, a lot of bad for, if you're in the media, a lot of bad food, late nights because you cover a game and then go have a few beers, and it's not good for anybody involved. All right, the like lasting legacy of this game, or or as I like to. Uh determine just why are we covering this i think it, this one is yeah more obvious than any other i mean it, it's got this perfect sort of storytelling clash of it's, it's a young penguins team in the sense that you've got this core that is still uh carrying the franchise in crosby malkin and latang but you've also like they made such a considered effort of surrounding those guys with like ruslan fedotenko miro jetan bill Guerin, yeah. you know the defense with gonchar and, and and so on and so forth like they, they do have a lot of veterans so it's not necessarily a super young group, but just because that team hadn't broken through yet, it felt like it was a perfect foil for this Red Wings t- team that felt like it was on its last legs at the time. And, and, and certainly as history's borne out, proved that this was kind of their, their last stand, so to speak. And so it was that perfect marriage of those two. And, and it was obviously the rematch as well of uh, the previous summer when the Red Wings won in a six game series, which was close in scoreline. But when I went back and, and looked at it and watched some of the tape, I was like, wow, that was, uh, that probably probably pretty, pretty easily could have been a sweep because I think yeah. like, the Red Wings had like a hundred shot uh, differential through those six games or something like that. It was like, it was, it was a pretty uh, one-sided affair. So it felt like the, the, the Penguins came into this uh, looking slightly differently, but felt like now that they'd gotten that under their belt, they, they had a better chance at actually knocking the Red Wings out once and for all. Yeah. To me, what, what made this such a, a rewatchable or a classic was, was a, it was the start of kind of the Crosby narrative as this, this guy who, you know, achieves great things with his team, right? He wins a cup in, you know, a year later or whatever, wins a gold medal. Um, it's so it's, it's kind of the start of the Crosby legacy. I think that, you know, the fact that it's, it's a game seven and it's, it's still very much in the balance until the last second of the game to me. And, you know, I've talked to all the players on the ice that were in, in in that moment. And it's like that to me makes it great. And I still think, 
I still think there was it was a bit of an upset, right? Like maybe to you the Red Wings were on their way out, but like the, at the time the Red Wings seemed like they were so much better than everybody else in the league. Even this young kind of on the rise Penguins team, because you had Nicholas Lidstrom, you know, Hall of Famers and Datsuk and Satterberg and Marion Hosso, which I'd even forgotten about. Um, you know, Johan Franzen. If you watch the first, and if people listening go and watch it, if you watch the first five ten minutes of this game, he's just a he's just trucking people and, mm-hmm. and is just absolute machine out there. And you're like, oh yeah, I forgot when the mule was engaged, how absolutely dominant he was. And he was always a guy that was so good in the playoffs for this Red Wings team, and was you know we're not not even talking about probably a top five player on that team or whatever. So uh, it, I think the fact that it was kind of the start of the Crosby era and the end of this this great dynasty, um, the Red Wings era, and and it maybe happened sooner than we thought made it so memorable. No, you're right. I, I was kind of uh, overselling that. I think, especially um, <laughs> you, you, like it's easy to say in hindsight, but you, you kind of need to see it for us to believe it. It's one yeah, of those sure. things. It's like yeah, it's like absolutely. with like Roger Federer and tennis or something, right? It's like it's like if they keep winning and keep winning, you just kind of assume that they're going to keep winning, and then after the fact, you can go like, oh, well, obviously, you know, they they got old, they lost for these reasons. Yeah, but it's easy to see now. Yeah, exactly in the moment, and I also think, I mean, we haven't mentioned it yet. Like you basically go from the Red Wings winning that series the year before pretty decidedly. I know the two teams look quite different, but you're also taking what the third best player off the Penguins in Marion Host and just dropping him into this Red Wings team in 2008-9. And, and so you had that storyline as well of him switching sides in free agency on this one-year deal and and looking to finally get over the hump and and win a ring as well. And so there was so much going on there. I, I think, you know, when we're setting the scene for this leading up to the Game 7, because I think the Game 7 itself isn't the most well-played game, I think, as, as I think game yeah, sevens yeah. typically aren't. I mean, it's understandable. There's so many nerves. It feels like everyone's gripping their sticks a bit tighter and not want to make any mistakes. But I went back and rewatched, uh, you know, most of the highlights of, of the games leading up to this. And there were certainly some stinkers. I think game five in Detroit, they, Pavel Datsu comes back into the lineup and they just completely blow the Penguins out five, nothing. And Marc-Andre Fleury gets pulled. But I think especially the games in Pittsburgh, it felt like games three, four, and uh, and even six were probably the most like highly uh, highest level of play I think and the most competitive in terms of it felt like there was so much happening and and maybe that's a testament to how good this Red Wings team was that it felt like they were taking care of business at home pretty routinely and kind of making it just look like another day at the office whereas when it went to Pittsburgh it felt like the Penguins had to really throw like pretty much everything at the Red Wings just to get those victories. Yeah, and and that was just in kind of over overall thoughts on this game was even it wasn't a great game in terms of how it was played because the Penguins score early and then really I don't even know if they had a shot on goal for the first 15 minutes of the third and we're just basically holding on for dear life against this Red Wings team and you watch like every memorable moment aside from those goals I felt like it was the Red Wings doing something you know what I mean like you just yep. you felt like it was so tilted in terms of the the way the game was played and and the, the other thing I remember is is Fleury was so much better in this game than than I remember like I, I mean we'll and we'll get to the save he makes at the end but mm-hmm. like that's the memorable moment but he was 
he was the reason this game was even close. If they, I mean, he made well, a couple of huge saves early on. Well, Flurry gets pulled in Game Five in Detroit. They go down five nothing late, and and the commentators are talking about how they're going to need Flurry for Game Six if they're going to get back in this series. And so you know they don't want to get this out of, out of hand. They want to preserve his confidence. So they put Matthew Garon in there, and right off the bat in Game Six, I think like three or four minutes in, Henrik Zetterberg has basically like a point blank uh, like one timer, and Flurry makes this amazing save, and the Penguins go down and score quickly thereafter. And, and you know the fact that he only gave up that one goal in game six and one goal in game seven like this was a big thing for him and and and, and flurry is i mean we could probably do a full podcast just on like what this game meant for his legacy and then what yeah. happened thereafter like it felt like in terms of just uh pure like twists and turns for a career no one's had more than that guy no, absolutely. Because, I mean, it bought him so much rope, right? Especially with, like, the Penguins fans. Like, he's so beloved there. And then he he just had that stretch where he wasn't particularly good for the Penguins, right? And, and but you couldn't, like, Penguins fans are really defensive. Of him. I mean, like, that, that love affair with Fleury and the Penguins fan base, basically, this is where it was locked in. And and now, now when you pan out of his career, I, I think – you know, there was people that were critical of him. I like there was a time where it was like, you're not even sure this guy should be, you know, a top 10 goalie. And it's turned out Fleury's been probably has been really, really good. Like he's a Hall of Famer. And, and there was a time maybe midway through his career where you started to doubt that. I think um, the other interesting thing for me here, like in just in terms of capturing what this series meant or, or what we had going into the game seven was if you look at the year long numbers, um, the Red Wings clearly look like the superior team. They were still the class of the league. And I think the Penguins, you know, no, notably um, early in February, were a couple points out of a playoff spot. They uh, fire. Michelle Therrien, they bring in Dan Bausma, who was running their AHL team. They rattle off this 18-3-4 stretch where um, they just start playing significantly better, too, for whatever reason. Uh, whether it was a system change, whether it was a motivational thing, whether um, they just needed a different voice, for whatever reason, they basically went from being this, like, bottom of the barrel i think they were like 26 or 27th in the league in every single underlying shot metric which at the time no one was really looking at but just right. funny to look back in hindsight where they were legitimately not a good team for the first whatever four or five months of the season and then all of a sudden bausma comes in and they start being this like 54 55 percent shot share team that's rivaling the red wings and so when you look at it from that segment of the final 25 games which funny enough um over time we've sort of adopted as a good predictor of playoff success and how good teams are heading into it and like like the blues last year for example were tops in the league in that um it's funny to look back at it now and be like oh no one was really talking about this at the time but this penguins team beyond just more wins and losses started playing significantly better as well right it's it's funny i I don't know when to me the kind of analytics national conversation shifted i don't know what year it was but it was i don't remember that one year with the kings i think was it the Kings? Well, there was the one year where the Minnesota Wild were like house of fire for the first half of the year. And all I think this was the big PDO stat. And all the, you know, analytics guys were like, uh, this is not sustainable. And, and you know, and everyone else is writing about, hey, this is what a surprise great team. And then it was like, then they they collapsed. And, and, and so that was to me the moment of where analytics kind of came to the forefront. This was probably right before that, like a couple years right before that. So mm-hmm. there, there weren't, there wasn't kind of this other conversation going on that, Hey, this Penguins team, this isn't the same team that you saw 
the first half of the season. Like this is a completely different team that should be Detroit's rival and should make it a long run. And and you know I think that they made those changes. They also had some players at the deadline. Like there was some pretty significant moves made there by Ratio to you know to to get this team where it was. And and you know all that's been forgotten. The other thing I'd forgotten, kind of leading into this game was uh malkin there was something i think i want to say there was a suspension rescinded or a game is called something happened with malkin where he was allowed to play and red wings fans quickly reminded us in our in our comment section <laughs> that like they felt like malkin shouldn't have been in this game and he ends up i think it's the first goal that he makes a play uh yeah. that that leads to it so it's i mean there's so much kind of forgotten history that goes into this oh there's going to be a big geno malkin section coming up here i'm excited right. about okay. that okay, um yeah well, you mentioned, you, you mentioned uh, just to put a bow on those moves. I mean, the Penguins sort of reloaded in the summer where they added some of that, uh, you know, veteran experience or toughness that you think of when teams fall short in the playoffs. They add Miro Jatan, they add Matt Cook, they add Ruslan Fedotenko. But it was at the around the deadline right after they re- made the coaching change where, um, you know, in, in hindsight, I, I forget what my take was on the trade at the time, but I remember thinking that Ryan Whitney, just because of his point totals, was a top player and he was playing. Sure enough, I think he was second on the team in 5 on 5 usage and second overall behind just uh, Sergey Gonchar on the Penguins. And they basically just flip him. Uh, they get back... Um, Chris Kunitz and Chris Kunitz. he all yeah. of a sudden, um, you know, jumps in and starts playing first line wing with Sidney Crosby. It's very rare that you see that type of a, a trade. Like it, it was, it was, uh, a natural flip in terms of positions, but also like that significance where a guy just jumps in and all of a sudden starts playing with, with Kunitz. It was funny to look back actually at, at the wingers that were playing on the top six with Malkin and, and Crosby, where it's like, um, not necessarily, um, a, a, a real who's who of, uh, of talent, but it's funny. It's <laughs> Right. funny to look back at i mean it speaks to the greatness of those two guys that they they basically had these grinders who were just able to win puck battles and, and be in the right spots and and they clearly helped get those guys to ascend to to higher levels than they had previously in their career yeah i always one of the things i'm always you know fascinated by like there was that you had the group of young penguin stars that came up together the malkins flurry crosby and then there was also the the young kind of next wave that was part of that core for a while. So you had, you know, Ryan Whitney, you had a guy like Colby Armstrong and Eric Christensen and these other young players that probably thought, boy, we're going to be part of this great core of players for the Penguins for the next 10 years and win a bunch of Stanley Cups. And all of a sudden, um, obviously, history changes. And Ray Shero did that a couple of times. I remember talking to him. I think this was a conversation we had just about um, – drafting best player available or building up organizational depth it was just kind of a draft philosophy and he's like one of the things they just felt like at the time um i don't know if it was undervalued in the draft but they're like they kept looking for defensemen and they're like we always feel like you can get the winger you need or whatever by spinning a a defenseman and they did it in this case and they did it with alex goligoski and the james neal trade like this was this was part of the the playbook for the uh they also Drafted Jake Muzzin right around this time. Unfortunately, I think he didn't sign and ended up signing with the Kings as a free agent. But I mean, this is what this is part of the game plan. Like, let's let's draft and develop these young defensemen, and then and then if if we have the opportunity, spin them. What was a ballsy decision to to make too? Because you know, at the time, I don't think people were necessarily looking at this. I think we were much more preoccupied with with points for a defenseman. But it, like, speaking you were of preoccupied that, with like the senior prom or whatever was going on. Well, I yeah, I was obviously. Yeah, I mean, it was it was a big decision of who I was going to take. But um, 
for like I was just looking at Ryan Whitney. It was so funny. I was pulled up his natural statics page, and and I think part of that five on five sort of ascension for this team was he was one of their worst shot share players, and he was like at like forty percent or something ridiculous while playing uh, an insanely heavy workload on their top pair. And it was a ballsy decision for for Ray Shearer to do that, just from the perspective of in season they were ch- sending him out, and I don't think they were necessarily ready to fully uh, trust. You know, Goligoski wasn't playing in the playoffs for them at that point. Latang yeah. was still like 19 minutes per game in game seven. He only played 16. So it's not like they really felt fully confident and completely unleashing those young guys. Instead, they were like, we're just going to double down and go insanely heavy on 35 year old Sergei Gonchar. And they just like leaned on him to play like 24, 25 minutes a night. And, and I mean, it, it worked out for them, but it, it, it certainly wasn't, um, you know, in hindsight, it looks like a great decision, but I think at the time it must have been, uh, you know, a particularly sort of uh, risky or perilous one because if Gonchar goes down there, they would have been pretty screwed. I want to see that my, if I was doing trade grades at the time. Now, I, I want to just go back and look at everything I wrote leading up to this. Or I was, you mentioned whether or not you were on Twitter. I was on Twitter. I signed up. I'm just looking now, January 2009. So somewhere, and I don't even know how to access any of this. I'm sure I have either reaction to these deals or or at least some pictures of Joe Louis Arena in the moment, which would be fun. Hmm. All right. What age the best? I'm going to say this game. All right, good. Because the game itself isn't bad, but I haven't watched the hockey game in two weeks. And <laughs> I just, just watching could, hockey aged well. I, I just couldn't live with myself knowing that King Sens was the last game I'd watched before mm-hmm. the quarantine. And so just having a full hockey game to dive into and just hearing familiar voices and just seeing the faces, I, I, I felt much more comfortable. So I highly recommend people just go and just watch some some hockey on YouTube. It's a very, very uh, comforting feeling. Uh, yeah, I, I can say that like, so we were watching it and we were slacking Max and Sean and I, and it just was, it was so much fun. And like my son came in and watched and it was just, it was fun to be talking hockey and, and watching hockey and having this two hour block of ignoring everything else going on around us. So uh, that definitely aged, um, really well to me. I, I, I mean, a couple of things to, to me, um, you know the, the the idea of Mark Andre Fleury being a clutch goalie ages mm-hmm. well, right? Like that's a, that's kind of this narrative in the world of hockey, and this this is a guy you want out there, and and all this stuff, and and he's he's had some huge moments, and if if that if you really believe that, and then you go back and watch it, it's certainly I think that concept ages well. I thought the broadcast aged well, like Doc's call. I know people don't, not everybody loved Doc Emmerich, and uh, you know Pierre Maguire certainly has his critics, but I thought Doc's call was really good in this game. I uh. I have a Doc and Eddie's commentary corner here as a category. And okay, all right. Well, then I'll let's hold get, on. Let's, let's get into it right now. So, because right, okay. I have a, just a couple quick thoughts, it's, it's kind of a flyby category. I think it, it's it's funny that it sounds very similar to what you would hear in 2020, which we were talking yes. about how like very few, very few things feel not familiar but similar, I guess, to what it would be like now with technology and how much stuff's changed. But like. You really, just from purely listening to this broadcast, would not be able to tell that it was from 2009. And I think in theory, that you're right, that does make it age the best just because so often we listen to or see stuff like movies or TV shows from 10, 15 years ago. And it like seems from this entirely different era where it just doesn't hold up over time. And in this case, like it really does sound very similar to what you'd hear right now. It was, it was like that, like that's even the music and everything. It just struck me as like, oh, this could be showing right now. And, and I don't know what that says about the evolution of the coverage of the game or not, you know, that mm-hmm. we're sitting there yeah, going, boy, so. this, yeah. you know, you, you'd want, and, and not to like 
you know, uh, pile on that we're missing hockey in the potential playoffs. But like this was the playoffs we're supposed to get player tracking and really see, you know, I think I think we're about to start. We're on this precipice of the game looking very different from a broadcast perspective because of the player tracking that's coming. And and games like this are going to be like, oh, my gosh, we don't know. Hey, how come we don't know who's on the ice, you know, with little arrows and, you know, there's going to be all these different. How, how do I know, you know, how fast Pavel Datsuk's skating or whatever they're going to have. So I think I think right now it looks like it hasn't changed and we're kind of that's going to adjust. Um, we one of our categories with Sean and Max was peak Doc Emmerich. And we're talking about the broadcast and yep. Sean pointed out this moment where Muhammad Ali is in the stands. Right. And Doc launches into this this, you know, the quick story that, you know, we didn't know existed. And then he cuts himself off, goes right back into the action and says, we'll save the rest for another time. It was it was so Doc. It was so perfect. <laughs> um, well, speaking of, uh, of of that, Pierre Maguire, I think actually and I think it's a good thing played a smaller role in this operation compared to 2020 you'll eat here. I think like there yeah. was fewer sort of interjections and, and comments from uh, where he was sitting between the circle, between the benches. I think he let doc and Eddie um, control the, the flow of the game and then sort of tell that story much better. And I think it served the broadcast well, but during the timeout with, one seventeen left in the game. The game's on the line. The Stanley Cup's about to be handed out. They show Ray Shiro in the press box. Oh my gosh. And Pierre Maguire goes on this just perfectly vintage monologue about how Ray Shiro's dad coached the All-Star game in Joe Lewis in 1979. And he lost that game. And Ray Shiro told him that he was going to come back to Joe Lewis and win this game. Mm-hmm. I guarantee that interaction never happened. That's just an insane thing to have. Like what, 1979. What the hell? It was. It was amazing. So that was Gentile told that story in peak Pierre moment, and he said, "I'm going to read just two sentences." He goes, "It was an absolute tour de force from our guy." After Babcock used his timeout with 117 left, he, he told the French Arrow story in the 1979 or 80 All Star game, followed by calling Bilesma Danny. Uh, it, it was a four-bagger Grand Slam, and he said it all in like 11 seconds, which was yeah. amazing. Ed's Owen Dock, that's Ray Shiro, the general manager of the Pittsburgh Penguins. When this building opened, the All-Star game was here in 1979-80. His father was a coach of the Philadelphia Flyers. He coached in the All-Star game here. His dad lost. Ray Shiro said, I want to come back here tonight and win this thing right here in Detroit. He had an amazing bit, too, where he's talking about how Sidney Crosby's sitting beside him, and that's bad for the Penguins because that means he's not on the ice. And, like, it, like the camera perfectly zooms in slowly while he's saying it, and Sidney Crosby's legitimately sitting beside him on the bench just, yeah. like, so upset, just not. <laughs> but he can, you can tell he can hear what Pierre is saying, and he's just, like, so unhappy with the situation. That's pretty oh great. Gosh, it was great. Um, so, yeah, okay. So, what, what else is the best? I think the, the Red Wings dynasty. So... Mm. You know, dating back to the Russian Five and the Doc coming out and sort of reliving that, the 25-year playoff streak, I think our appreciation, we've talked a bit about analytics and sort of looking at stuff that we weren't probably factoring in in 2009. You just go back and sort of these Red Wings teams, the 08-09 team wasn't quite as dominant as the 07-08 team, but they really were sort of the GOAT five-on-five teams in terms of um, just maintaining puck possession, stringing together passing plays, just feeling like they just grind opposing teams into the ground. I mean, it's ridiculous. That 08 team had like a 59% shot share for the full season, and it was just just obscene. It's it's stuff you don't 
don't see. I think they literally, those two teams, 07 to 09, were the two, top two uh, shot share teams we had, we've had so far in the analytics era going back to 07. So it's just uh, we haven't really seen anything like it. And, you know, part of it was this accumulation of talent and them having a leg up on the competition with drafting and getting some of these guys later in the draft from Europe that no one else was taking. Part of it was some sort of shenanigans with, with financials and making all the money work. But they just had this ridiculous core and it was on its last legs and it was not fading on its way out. But it was still so dominant in the season. Yeah. It, so to me, another one would be Nicholas Lidstrom, or if you wanted to say like the concept of him being the best defenseman, of his generation, just watching him at that age. And he played, I'm sure over 30 minutes. I haven't looked at the box score, but and it's at one point after the second period, he played more than 10 minutes just in the second alone. And he was just like, he was perfect. And he's, you're just watching him and he's like, it, it, it really in an alternate universe, if he scores, it would have been so fitting for him to score that, that goal at the end, because I thought he played so well. And it was just a reminder. Um, I mean, he, he is as soon as he left Detroit, like that's when the fall began. Right. And you're like, mm-hmm. how important was this guy? Yeah. All these, they have all the other, other, other great players, but this was a guy just controlling the game at, at that age, which was amazing. Yeah, and he played like 27 or 28 minutes in this game, and especially as the game went on, it felt like he wasn't leaving the ice, and he was still so good. Um, and he still had a couple of really, really dominant seasons after that, but um, yeah, the Red Wings' depth here, too. I mean, it, it was funny to look back at. I mean, it was an entirely, entirely different salary cap world, but... Yeah. Um, like, Henrik Zetterberg, not on his ELC, is making $2.65 million per season right now on a four-year deal. When this game's happening, uh, <laughs> is Johan that Fran- what he was on? Oh my god! Johan Franz is making under a million. Um, oh. and, you know, both both guys signed to mega uh, double digit year contracts for the following season, so this was their last year of having that luxury. But yeah, just the the sort of uh, machinations of how the Red Wings were able to have this type of depth. You know, you look yeah. at. Um, whether it's Yuri Hudler or, or Michael Samuelson or Valtteri yeah. Filippo, like they just have That's all right. these guys. Just forgot that, they had these guys. Yeah, that did age so well because whether it was for the Red Wings or for other teams with Samuelson going and playing with Sedins in Vancouver or Phil Pilla, you know, his best years were in Detroit, but he goes to Tampa Bay and still has the shelf life. I mean, he's still in the league. It just, it's, it's, they had all these guys that were kind of bit parts for them at this point because they still did have those top dogs that were older than them, but um, they just had so many pieces. Then you look at like Darren Helm is on the fourth line and he's just mm-hmm. completely wrecking havoc with his speed and physicality. Justin Ablocator makes a cameo here and scores a couple goals uh jonathan erickson they have all these guys that were around for so long after so yeah i think the red wings depth did age the best yeah I, that's a great one I, and i was gonna say something similar and that's probably to red wings fans a little more controversial but i would say the contracts that that ken holland gave to guys like erickson and helm actually aged they haven't aged well so there's no debating right. that but understanding the thought process, I guess if I can put it that way, aged really well. Because when you watch this game, Erickson was good. Darren Helm, like you said, there was points he was the best player out there, at least the most noticeable player on the right. ice. Yep. Just flying around. And you're like, oh, okay. You forget, oh, yeah, these guys were really good. And they were they were really good complementary players on a good team. And it just became problematic when you're asking them to be more than that. And, I mean, that's what we saw towards the end there. My final what age the best. I mean, I think the stars in general in this game did. Just, yeah, I mean, the star yeah. power is just insane. I think the player that ages the best, and I highly recommend people just go and, and just go on a YouTube deep dive, fall into a rabbit hole, and just watch as much as you want. But my God, young Evgeny Malkin, mm. um, 
I don't think like our hockey parlance doesn't have a term to describe how good he was. I think we need to go to like the British football scene and use the word sublime here. Yeah, he was sublime. He's, he's just he's just a hockey playing robot. Like it's insane. I, I kind of forgot because it's been so long now, and you know he's had a ton of miles put on him, but also like his body just because of how big he is. And he's put on some weight as well in terms of just bulking up as you naturally do when you get into your late twenties, he's slowed down a little bit and is more methodical now and picks his spots and still has those flashes of greatness. When Crosby was out this year, he was remarkable carrying the Penguins team, but just going back and watching, like he was so lean. He was so fluid. Um, just watching him kind of command the game and just move up and down the ice. Like there were sequences where he just, it doesn't resemble anything Unlike I've never really seen anything like it. Like it's, it's crazy to watch it. And I, I just had a, a whole newfound appreciation for just watching him at this time because he was just so dominant. Yeah, I mean, he'll go down as probably the the greatest underappreciated player. And we appreciate him. Like, we love Malkin. But of this era, we're going to look back and be like, oh, yeah, this guy was unbelievable. And Like, along those lines, my last one would be, or just to support what you're saying, um, the star power. There's a, there's a stretch early on where it goes into four-on-four. Four, and I'm sitting there watching, and you're just rolling out, you know, Malkin, Crosby, Latang, Zetterberg, Lidstrom, Datsuk, Hosa. Like, this is, I mean it's it's i mean these are hall of famers and in, in during this stretch and i mean it happened the whole game but when you like distilled it down to that moment in time where we're, we're going best on best and four on four it was pretty great all right what age the worst um how about so uh, the one thing i noticed like we in this era you look at the coaching staff and uh, of these teams and you're like okay for the next stretch like dan bilesma is considered the best coach in the u.s and you know he wins this game and has the stretch in coaches the u.s olympic team in sochi mike babcock is, is the best coach in the game and now here we are in 2020 and dan bilesma is you know is an assistant coach in detroit and and mike is is going to have to go into some sort of transition here or, or, you know, whatever. He's just waiting for his shot after what happened in Toronto. And so right. I, I guess what age is the worst is this concept that those two are the best, you know, coaches for their countries in the game. Yeah. Yeah. I think the Mike Babcock thing, we, we don't have to sort of get into that or relitigate it, but it's the, yeah, the way the, the broadcast is speaking about him, it just, it feels like it's like Mike Babcock and then everyone else when it comes to the co- hockey yeah. coaching greatness at this point. And, and it's amazing how, uh, how much that's, that has changed. Um, you know the I have a bunch of stuff here. Uh, I think, <laughs> okay, I think all right. Chris Osgood's uh, style. Oh my gosh! What about his mask? Well, the mask. I think his like stand-up style of like there's times where he like someone like kind of just puts a weak shot on it, and he's like full stance just kicking it away like similar to like you like you you'd see that a lot in like the the Gretzky clips where like he's scoring on these goalies where they just like they're like fumbling around and kind of like tripping over themselves and it's like oh yeah I think Alex Ovechkin would probably score a million goals if he played at this point just watching like Osgood was one of the last ones and it felt like it was on the way out where it's like you just made it look so dangerous every time. It's like, oh, I, I felt like every single shot could have, and he was good in this series. He had like a nine thirty save percentage. He had the shutout, yeah. but um, I just he's the like, con Smythe like, winner if they win that game. He's he wins the con Smythe, and I don't know if we're going to go down any alternate realities, but he probably is in the Hall of Fame if they win that game because he wins a con Smythe. He wins his right. fourth Stanley Cup, um, and you know he was really good in the playoffs. 
So I think I think he probably like who who loses the most or whatever. If that's a category, Chris Osgood probably is the leading candidate in terms of legacy. Okay, so do you want to know the the top five uh, goals saved above expected leaders in this season for the regular season for two thousand eight nine? Goal save above. Okay, yes, let's yep. hear it. Henrik Lundqvist was plus forty one, so he <laughs> saved forty one more goals than you'd expect based on his uh, shot profile. Played seventy games. It was a, a stretch where he played seventy plus in four straight years. We're not going to see that again. Tim Thomas was second, plus twenty five point five. So that's that's quite oh, yeah. a. He's out there quite, making saves. Quite a cliff. Nine thirty two save percentage in only fifty three games. Cam Ward, one of his best seasons, sneakily on on a Hurricanes team, plus thir- plus thirteen. Roberto Luongo. Plus thirteen in Vancouver, and Jonas Hiller, who just recently retired, plus twelve. Oh, so Jonas I wanted to Hiller. give a bit of a shutout. Sixty uh, fifth overall, Mark Andre Fleury minus nine. Seventy second overall, Ty, Ty Conklin <laughs> minus thirteen. Oh god, eighty eighty sixth and the worst goalie in the league, Chris Osgood with a cool mm. minus thirty point eight. Hmm. Wow. So you're not putting him in the hall regardless of what happens. He in this had game. an eight eighty five save percentage this season in forty six games, and. <laughs> We're going to get into most unanswerable questions, but for me, it was like, what if the Red Wings had just given Jimmy Howard a shot? Mm. Um, you know, he had a 924 save percentage in 63 games for them literally the next season. He was already 25 at this point, so I'm not really buying, like, he was unproven in the NHL, but I'm not buying the argument that he wasn't ready from, like, a mental maturity perspective. Right. It just right. feels weird that they would trust him to play 63 games literally the next season, and he would do amazingly in them. But at this point, and that's acknowledging that Osgood had a 930 save percentage in this postseason and was really good in, in this series. All that aside, I just think like from a big picture perspective, just the timing of all that seems kind of bizarre to me. Yeah, no, it's you're right. So, I mean, if you remember the the kind of the philosophy with Detroit was, you know, they, they in terms of balancing the cap, it was to not spend in goal. Right. And, at the you know, and, and you saw Eisenman bring that down to Tampa on some level, at least early on. And, and so that like there was there was some methodology. And then the other. So you're talking about a couple of philosophies and the other philosophy, of course kind of historically in Detroit and in that era was to the young kids basically had to beat down the door and overripe or whatever phrase we want to use. And, and Jimmy Howard was kind of experiencing that in that moment. But that's, that's really fascinating. Um, the other thing that I like got a kick out of in terms of what's aged the worst, you could tell NBC and the NHL was still kind of working through their digital strategy, right? This, this must've been right before smartphones came out because you had these, all these promos for like Vcast and NBC to go and, these flip phones that they were showing and I, like just to see all that old technology that really seemed dated now and, and really not that long ago over yep. time yep um, yeah to, to, to your point i did have uh how the red wings handled young players as a whole and maybe we can i don't know if we could attribute that to mike babcock i mean it, it you know certainly in toronto it felt like there was some of that left over as well in terms of philosophy of making young guys earn it but it felt like and for years after as well right like you'd have like like how long did it take until Gustav Nyquist and Thomas Tatar were playing big roles on on the Red Wings? They were like already in their mid twenties at that point. And considering what we know about aging curves and how maybe start players peak when they're like twenty two, twenty three, twenty four, maybe you should be playing them earlier as opposed to having them season in the AHL for years and years. Now, when this team was so deep and had so many uh, veteran players that were still really good, it makes it easier to do that. But as the Red Wings started to thin out it felt like they were still kind of operating that way. And, and maybe yeah. that was part of their, their undoing as well when the margin for error kind of shrunk. So I think, I think, you know, there's certainly that as well. And then I think the Red Wings, you have to kind of put them here just like 
I mean, all jokes aside about this season, um, like they haven't made it past the second round since this series. Yeah, what's even worse than the entire franchise? Yeah, I mean they're heading towards their fourth straight miss after 25 years of making it in a row, and, and that happens. That's kind of the cyclical nature of the sport. But yeah, like I think what 2012, 13 when they pushed the the Blackhawks to yeah, they should have beat the Blackhawks like at one series. Yeah, their last sort of legitimately really competitive, really strong season, and that was like a lifetime ago. Yeah, no, I I think that's fair. I so that I I probably miscalculated or I I didn't anticipate how much this loss still hurt Red Wings fans. Like I I felt like in doing this exercise at the Athletic, we were far enough removed where even Red Wings fans could could, could go and get a laugh or whatever, or or just kind of take a nostalgic look at this game that would that just from an outside perspective was such a great game and a cool moment in time. And man, you know, the the anger from Red Wings fans when we posted this and, and it was in their feed to like, they're like, okay, we're all, you know, quarantined and we had the worst season ever. And this is, this is what we're getting to relive one of the biggest daggers because you're right. Like this was it. And, and if they win this, you know, they, there's back to back cups and it's a whole different thing and they're celebrating and it, it's a nice cap on that era. Instead, it's still a, a huge painful loss for these fans, clearly based on the reaction and, and you're right, like this was it. And, and there was that little blip against the Blackhawks where they probably should have won that series. And and then kind of the, it went downhill. I have got also oh, just a few more. They've got uh, defensemen breakout passes in this in this era of hockey. Like, I think that is, you know, people talk about how like physicality has changed the most and like hitting yeah. and fighting and stuff. Yeah. Like, I mean, the defensemen in this game, you've got. Well, you got Hal Gill, Rob Scuderi, mm-hmm. Brooks Orpik, Mark Eden for the Peng- for the Penguins. You've got, you know, young Jonathan Erickson, but like, you've got a, a bunch of guys uh, playing defense position that would probably not be playing or definitely not be playing big roles in today's game just because they don't have the ability to get the puck from point A to point B with speed and efficiency. Like they're like just treating the puck like it's a grenade here, whether it's going off the boards or just yeah. rifling these breakout right. passes up the ice that are going to get their players killed. Like it's, it's, well, it's crazy. Well, the exhibit to, A of that was Brad Stewart. Like this, oh my this God, was game seven. Good game yes. Brad Stewart. Yeah. And like what's age the worst was, you know, his performance and like, you know, so Brad was that, that prototypical, you know, physical stay at home defenseman that you could coaches liked and they could trust and man, this this was a pretty forgettable game for him. Well, and, and if you look at it, like just comparing it to today's game, and I think this ties into what we're talking about the actual quality of this game. It's like for goals to be scored, it felt like so many of them were just wild side of kind of scrambles around the net where like the goalies are literally being pushed into the net and then the puck <laughs> just forcibly somehow goes through them and in. Like it, it's so many things had to happen. Like there's there's so few just clean like rush plays it felt like if there ever was a rush it was because of like a block shot and kind of a a loose puck recovery or a defenseman making a bad pinch like brad stewart did when max talbot scores a second goal here it was very few sort of effort things we take for granted in today's game where it's just like beautiful passing that leads to two on ones um and so i i I think that certainly um should go into what age the worst it's we talk about the broadcast looks very similar 2020 just from like a stylistic perspective you can definitely tell that this was from a different era of the nhl like are we that are we far enough removed where you could just place like the tampa bay lightning and even though this is like a hall of fame laden team or the the start of the crosby era like that they're blowing the doors off them just because of style of play like the defenseman couldn't keep up 
I think so. Like, I think people like they'd be like, "Oh my god!" Like Mikhail Sergachev. Like, what is he? How is he? Like, did you see that crossover he did at the blue line? Like, people would just be blown away. It would be like he came from outer space to do these moves. So, right. I, I, I think there'd be an element of that for sure. Hmm. Um, okay, my final what age the worst? And this is like this is supposed to be a fun podcast, but we have to if we're kind of capturing this game. Johan Franzen, um, man, like it was just it's sad because he was so good. Yeah. In this game, and he was doing stuff around the net, just causing havoc, just with like screens, rebounds, deflections. Just he was such a handful. It felt like the Penguins needed to have like two guys on him just to contain him. And um, it's kind of chilling to go back and watch, and 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 with what we know now as well. And unfortunately, in preparation for this podcast, I was trying to get a better sense of timeline and figure everything out. And uh, I watched some videos of him taking hits on YouTube. And it was just, it was, it was really like, it was haunting and uh, it kind of sucks. And it's unfortunately um, sort of a reality that we have to reconcile with when we kind of fetishize some of these older games, because there was a price to be paid for the, for the style of play. Yeah, it, it was, it, it, it was shocking both just as in a reminder of how good he was. I just forgotten how good Franzen was. Mm-hmm. And yeah, you're right. Like when you sit there and go, okay, then the things he had to suffer through. And, and it's funny, we know now, like he, he came out and had those comments about playing for Mike Babcock and, and how hard that was for him. I did find myself, there was that time out late in the game um, and Mike is addressing the team. And I'm just, I was watching Franzen just to see, hey, is there any detection of him like tuning it out or, or anything just to see, hey, were there hints of what was to come or already happening there? And um, yeah, I think I think that's a very valid point. And it, even along those lines, we were talking about, you know, there was a hit from Cronwall on Talbot, like the puck is gone and it's way after the play and he leaves his feet and there's no call. And it's like this would have been a debate for two days on Twitter. And it's like, you know, we're 10 years removed. And I was like, oh, just keep on playing, boys. Matt Cook was an absolute maniac in this series. Like he was, <laughs> he was taking some liberties. Um, late hits, the game six. Um, like I think no one made a big deal about it because Datsuk skated off okay, but he like the puck's gone for like three seconds and he just completely launches himself into him and it would probably be like a, it would either be a a fine or like a ten game suspension in today's game. I don't, I'm not sure. Um, but yeah, it's 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 kind of crazy and and man it's it's really tough because it made me so sad just kind of thinking about Franzen and what he's gone through since then and watching that and and just we've i think what what's changed aged the worst or maybe what what's aged the most is the way we think about this stuff and also mm-hmm. like or i guess how we thought about it back then because i remember myself like i was kind of callous thinking about this stuff i was like i want these guys to play i think they should keep playing if they can and and you'd be the argument would be oh well the player wants to stay out there so let them go and it's like yeah. now we know that maybe especially if you've taken a big hit you're probably not in the right frame of mind to be making those decisions but also you should kind of give the car keys to someone else because this is like a really big deal and you know the year before friends and gets completely cold clock by gary roberts at one point um you know in 2010 Douglas Murray just like elbows him in the face for no reason. And like fans are just like booing friends in and he's like getting peeled off the ice by the trainer. And then he just stays on the bench and then goes out there on the next shift. And everyone is congratulating him for being tough and playing through it. Right. And with right. what we know now, I think that's aged the worst because yeah, that's, that's and, and thankfully worst. we've really come around on this topic. Yeah, no, I think that's a, that's good. That's a positive. And in, in, 
you know, we're, I guess what that's what's age the best, like our understanding of it, our understanding. of And, and a big part of that is, I mean, this is a, a Crosby game and, and it's, he has that, the winter classic moment, whatever it is, a year later, a year, whenever that, mm-hmm. he, that caps game was. Yep. And, that, and that, that became the big turning point in all this. Okay. Um, so I'm going to lump these two together. Like the, I've got like the TSN turning point, which is like okay. the defining moment. And then the most rewatchable sequence, I think for future episodes of this, uh, concept yeah hopefully be two different things to point out this game was solo event uh the shots were 24 18 that there's not very many rewatchable sequences and i think in particular you mentioned the the penguin shots um in the third period nbc runs this graphic with seven minutes left and three seconds uh and the shots on goal in that period are five nothing for the red wings with seven minutes left in that period the Penguins' only shot in the third is like this Evgeny Malkin slapper from the point with four minutes left, and that's pretty much it. They're like, they play the sort of consummate, like, block a shot, dump the puck out, the center, change, do it all over again, like 50 right. times. And uh, so it doesn't make for like the greatest viewing. I think if you watch the game as a whole, uh, the intensity of it really sucks you in, and so you kind of need to view it from that perspective. But I think. You know, it's got to be the flurry save here in terms of the sort of the most rewatchable sequence, right? Like the final, what, five seconds of the game. It comes back to the point. Yeah, that in terms of sequence or moment like that, that is like if you want to just catch one thing that that captures the intensity, it's it's that final stretch um, of time. I the the part I'd forgotten about, or just in terms of uh, another rewatchable moment or turning point, was maybe the last ninety seconds of the second period, where Detroit is just pouring it on, and you, you're sitting there going, "There's no way they don't score here," and they, they were dominant and flurries. Guys are blocking shots, and I think Malkin blocks a shot at one point. Flurry makes a great save, and somehow they just hang on, which essentially they did the whole game after they went up two nothing. But that that just in terms of moments and rewatchable, like it was it was intense, and and um, you, you'd just forgotten how how close this came to being a different game. Well, it's crazy that um, like Crosby gets tangled up with friends and he kind of gets like stapled up against the boards. He gets a yeah. section injury, I believe, right? And and so there's fourteen thirty three left in the second. He struggles off the ice. His next shift is with ten twenty one left in the third. He goes out for like thirty seconds. Yeah, it takes they're a talk- face off. Yeah. They're talking about how he's laboring and how much he's struggling, and he's basically just glued on the bench for the rest of the game. I think. And uh, you know the Penguins hold on. They had the luxury of a two nothing lead already at that point, but. Um, man like for such a classic game to involve all these star players and you know arguably the the sort of the name and the face of this entire upcoming generation we're talking about how like Crosby's Penguins finally make that leap and and win their cup and and for him you know he played a role in getting them there but just in terms of this game purely alone like he really doesn't do anything no and I'd forgotten in terms of things that we'd forgotten how early that injury was like for some reason I knew Stid got hurt um, and I knew, you know, I, I remember that being a thing and him kind of coming out and taking a twirl to test it out and trying to play. I didn't know what happened when it did midway through the second. Like I felt like it was a third period thing or whatever. And, you know, and there's this interview at, at one point with Dan Bosman. Dan's like, no, he'll be back. He'll, you know, he'll, he'll be back out there. And we never really understood the severity of it because you kept thinking, oh, he's going to get back out there. He's going to get back out there. And he really, he does that one shift. And I think he even wins a face off, but he's clearly laboring. 
and you know then then he goes to that shot of him and pierre and he's miserable and mm-hmm. um yeah so like that you know we do write this okay this is Sidney crosby's first cup and and this is it but really this was you know in terms of who played the best i mean this is max talbot's moment this is malkin being dominant this is mark andre fleury being clutch and it was truly it was you know the guys around him that got it there okay so let's that's a good segue then what the biggest heat check performance <laughs> the biggest uh, heat check i'll let you so, start so i had and then we're, we're going like the player this is we're going to use this as like the player who was most sort of unsung i think where you wouldn't expect like i'm not going to go like evgeny malkin he had a good game he had a great series but you expect that from evgeny malkin it's funny enough because my two candidates here for it are his two line mates um you know yeah. ruslan fedotenko if you go back in 20 2003-4 when tampa bay lightning won their cup he tied Brad Richards with 12 goals for the team lead during that run. And uh, in this series, he's got another seven power play, uh, seven um, playoff goals for the Penguins playing with Malkin. But it's got to be Talbot here, right? The two goals. Yes. He's playing like plays 1947 in game six 1908 in game seven like he's like legitimately being used as a top line guy they have him out there at the end of the game with jordan stall trying to kill the clock like he's doing everything um the two goals like the first one is sort of a fluky bounce where brad stewart coughs up the puck uh to our point of defenseman not being able to move it during this era and it goes off malkin and right to talbot and he kind of squeezes it under Osgood and similarly I think Osgood was like kind of trying to stand up and kick the puck away and it just went through his legs and then uh on the second one it's just a beautiful shot coming down on a two-on-one after Brad Stewart pinch so um he had eight goals that postseason it's funny because he scored more than 13 once in his career and he didn't even top eight goals in seven of his 11 NHL seasons so this was just like a magical playoff run for Max Talbot so that yeah so for sure he's he's the heat check he's he you know i didn't realize he had had eight goals until they showed it on the screen like i was like i remember max Talbot being great in this game and having a good series but he was like you said like he's playing with with malkin he was he was good that whole playoffs like like this was this was the beginning of the kind of max Talbot love affair with everybody and and uh so he wins it i would say if i'm giving a runner-up um in terms of if we're going to eliminate the big stars, it's Jordan Stahl. I thought mm-hmm. Jordan Stahl was great in this game. Yep. To, to the point where I was like, how do they trade him? Like, w- w- you know, and I understood why in the economics of it. And he got that $10 million a year deal. And they probably couldn't afford all three of those centers. But I'm watching him going, boy, there had to be a way to make this work long term. Because he was so good. And, and, and what a mismatch opportunity that was when you can roll him out on your third line. And he was, he was dominant at times in this game, I thought. The uh, well, the biggest heat check performance isn't Max Talbot in this game. It's the Max Talbot series of commercials for a- ANL Motors. Where uh, he's he's uh, he's calling himself a superstar and chicka chicka yeah oh my yeah, gosh. and then uh, and then uh, it, it's it's the most like unintentional comedy ever where he's like him Colby Armstrong Sergey Gontra and Evgeny Malkin and it's like the stiffest acting I've ever seen in my life it's so so good like the legend of Max Talbot so he does this he has this moment and then you know he's he's just the, he's the star of the twenty four seven you know uh, Winter Classic 
HBO series with, you know, the Santa's helper. Like he was just so funny, like watching mm-hmm. Max and like this, you got to set to his personality. There's even, there was even a point where I think they had him mic'd up in this game or at some, something where you, you got to see him like he, he's clearly enjoying himself. And you like a guy that, that here's his biggest game of his life. And he's just out there like living his best life. And uh, so that's, he's, he wins this category for me. Okay. Most unanswerable question. Um, so you, you were talking about Jordan Stahl. He was actually really good in this series. Like he had a game in Pittsburgh where he has this shorthanded goal where he puts he like puts together this one highlight where it would be everything you need to see to think that he's gonna be the next big thing in the league, right? Like he's got this like defensive ability. He he wins this uh, race for the puck. Then he uses his body to box out the defender and he finishes it off uh, over the goalie's shoulder. And you're just like, oh my god! Like he just was able to do all of this in one sequence. Like this guy's amazing. And he's still whatever, 20, 21 years old at this point. My unanswerable question is what if the penguins had not drafted Jordan Stahl? Oh, so instead, I thought you were going to say, what if they didn't trade him? So what if they hadn't drafted him? What, what is, well, what is his draft year? Look, I have to go back and look now. Well, So they took him over Jonathan Taves and Nicholas Backstrom. Uh-huh. Um, and you know, it wasn't a reach because there was a lot of, I was trying to find definitive pre-draft rankings. I couldn't find Bob McKenzie's. Uh, some had Taves at second behind Eric Johnson. Others had Jordan Stahl at second and then Taves third. And then I think like Baxter was a bit down. It was kind of tough because he was obviously in the European rankings and Kessel was next in the North American ones. But there was an interview that where Jonathan Taves basically like professes that he thought he was going to the Penguins at second overall. And, uh, you know, he was obviously happy to go to Chicago and, and he's had an amazing career for himself. And it's, you get into this kind of like hindsight thing of like, would Taves or Backstrom had been the same player if they were playing third line center behind Malkin and Crosby behind under shadows, less minutes playing with worse players. There's certainly an argument for, for to be made for that. You know, Stahl has had a really good productive career. He's never, I think, reached the heights that we thought he could just because I I think he ultimately lacks that kind of finishing ability or pure highest end offensive touch to be a lead offensive player. He's amazing defensively, and he shows that in this series, and that's why he was perfect in this role for the Penguins. And I think, you know, trading him six years later is disappointing when you do that for a second overall pick, but they got back the eighth pick. Now they didn't get anything for it because they drafted Derek Pouliot, and he never wound up panning out for them. But, you know, you get you get Sutter, you get Dumoulin, who obviously turned out as the best player for them there, and and you don't have to pay him that $60 million deal that the Canes wound up paying him to, and then he's still playing under. So it kind of wound up working out, but it is one of those great kind of crossroad crossroad moments to go to go back and wonder like what if you just toss Taves or Baxter into this Penguins team or I mean Phil Kessel was in that conversation as the best player in that draft so I mean we obviously we got to see that happen later on what if but what if Phil Kessel's on that team for the whole dynasty in in rather than later on in his career and he doesn't go to because now you're if they take Kessel and we're gonna we're gonna assume he flourishes with Malkin and Crosby on on the wing there. Now you remove that trade with Toronto and Boston, which you know turns Toronto upside down and, and changes their rebuild. Um, they probably don't get Austin Matthews, so it, I mean, we're changing a lot of history there. So I, I, I love that idea of, of of if that draft looked different. My my unanswerable question was, what if the Red Wings win and Marion Hosa stays in Detroit mm. that year? And now, so if they win and they they all figure out a way to make it work, and he's you know happy and wants to stay, now doesn't go to Chicago, who wins three cups with Marion Hosa playing a major role in those Stanley Cups. Uh, you know how do how do the next five, six, seven, ten years look differently if if Marion Hosa stays? 
So the cap that season was fifty six point seven million, and we're making a big deal about how it rose like six million or something from the previous year. So Hosa signs this one year seven point four five million. He's basically like a gun for hire, right? He's trying to win a cup, yeah. but he's also maximizing his earnings. He signs that twelve year sixty three million dollar deal the following summer with Chicago, and ultimately winds up winning. But it also. I don't know what category to put it in, but like a player of his caliber signing this type of a one-year deal is also so fascinating to me. Like right, we don't, we don't right. really see it, especially with, and maybe you know, going back and reflecting on this series with friends and, and with like, with injuries and how sort of how brutal the sport can be. Like I can see why players would be unwilling to do that and would want to uh, prioritize financial security. But um, yeah, just, just the idea of a player signing that kind of one-year deal where he makes a ton of money in that one year and tries to win a cup and then goes somewhere else. Like I'd love to see more of that. And it wasn't even like he max, like sometimes you you say, okay, I'm going to do a one-year deal and, and maybe get a little bit more money. He left money on the table. I Like I remember those negotiations his agent, Rich Winter tells a great story where he calls Ken Holland and Ken's like pumping gas and is like, Hey, would you do this at this number? And and I think at the time I, don't, I forget what Nick Lidstrom was making, but there was kind of essentially a Nick Lidstrom cap with the Red Wings, and it was and Marion was like, well, I don't want to, you know, I don't want to come in and make more than that. So like, took a discount essentially out of one year deal to go play in Detroit. Now they now you know we all sit there and go, okay, he was trying to pick a Stanley Cup winner. Um, Marion would argue like, yes, he wanted to play for a winner, but he, there was also this is a guy that came up. You know, with Ottawa, went to Atlanta on some not necessarily great teams. Yep. Uh, had had that run in Pittsburgh, and he like there was part of him. He says, you know, he wanted to learn from guys like Lidstrom and all these veterans. Like he had never been part of that culture in his career of of this you know, historically great team, and learned to learn how to win. And and you know, then the you know, in theory, the, the Blackhawks were the benefactor there. Well, tying that into it, uh, another question is, what if Datsuk doesn't miss the first four games here? I mean, uh, oh, yeah. he, he makes his impact felt immediately in Game 5 with two assists, and he's just dominant. You know, he was fourth in scoring this year. Uh, it was the second of three straight Selkies. The Red Wings were, like, just unheard of good with him on the ice at 5-on-5, and with him and Hosa playing at 5-on-5 together this year, they had a 38-14 to goal differential. Um so just like the idea of those two guys playing together and completely terrorizing opponents and just never giving them the puck, like obviously looks entirely differently in this series. And um, yeah, I would have liked to see more of that. All right. How about this? So I, I looked it up because I mentioned it earlier. So, so Malkin um, draws at an instigator penalty in the final yeah. 19 seconds of game two. So should have been suspended, right? For the next game. But the NHL obviously has flexibility and they don't suspend him. So I wonder how things look differently if Malkin is actually forced to to, to sit that game out. Okay, here's my final one. And uh, we can move on to our next topic after this. I just want you to mull it over for the future. Okay. In our analysis of like pre-draft and prospects and looking for tools, you know, in the NBA, a big uh, buzz term is wingspan. Right. Why don't we make a bigger deal of that in NHL circles? Like you watch what Colton Pareko did in, in the 2019 Stanley mm. Cup. You watch in this series, like what Malkin and Jordan Stahl are doing in terms of just like, and even Marian Hosa, for example, like what they're doing yeah. to the opposition in terms of just limiting their time and space and making it difficult for them. We, we factor all of these things like speed, work ethic, size for some reason, um, more so than just, I, I, I guess it's kind of like correlated with being taller. You have probably longer arms and more reach. But, yeah. I mean, Colton um, Franco gigantic. It feels like you should, it feels like we should be prioritizing, uh, wingspan more or just as like a pure skill than we do in NHL circles. 
Yeah, like just reach, right? Like yeah. how much ground can this player cover? Mm-hmm. Um, I feel like you just wanted to get that off your chest. Like I don't know I how that ties into that. Was, that was not an, that was not an unanswerable question. All right, uh, most of that guy, like the just watching mm, this game, being yeah. like, oh my god, that guy. It's got to be uh, for me. It's Tyler that. Kennedy. Oh um, god, yeah, yeah. In the deep recesses of the internet, there were like wars about him. Where like was how good was he? He was this analytics darling, great underlying numbers, huge. Was shot he? Rates. Was he at the time? I don't remember that. He there were there were like uh, wins above replacement models that had him as the best player on the Penguins, and uh, people <laughs> would freak out about it. And it was like classic bottom six winger. People are having these crazy online debates on forums about him. But man, this is a this is a nod to all of my uh, all of my all of my nerds listening to this podcast. But Tyler Kennedy watching this was like, oh yeah, there's there's Tyler Kennedy. Uh, that guy, that's a, that's a great one. Um, I mean, there's so many in this game. Go ahead. Right? Let me, cause yeah, I wasn't prepared for this one. I, you know, there was just names I'd forgotten like Brett Lebda, you know, out there yeah. and going, I mean, oh, Ruslan yeah. Fedotenko. I mean, Ruslan, even Ruslan Fedotenko. Yeah. Oh there's my gosh. Lot. And, there's and like, others. you know, um, you know, Peter Sikora has, you know, plays in this game and, yep. and I like, I had even forgotten. I, for some reason I had had, um, Kirk Malpe and Chris Draper attached to another time, right? Like I didn't, you know, Chris Draper only plays seven or eight minutes in this game, but you know, and same with Kirk Malpe, but you do notice them and you're like, Oh yeah, there, there was still a piece of the grindland left in this and still kind of making an impact. Twitter take you wish you had in the moment. Twitter take I wish I had in the moment. Do you mind? Yeah, I want to hear yours. Don't take, and this is one I've been doing a lot lately, but don't take playoffs as for granted regardless of how promising the future looks. Mm. So I think if, you know, if you were like, oh man, this Penguins team, like Crosby Malkin, they're going to win the next seven cups. Yeah. Well, you know, they lose in the second round to the Habs next year, surprisingly. Then Crosby starts having injury concerns. His first concussions crop up. They have two straight first round exits. They don't win a single conference final game for six years. Obviously, they win their back-to-backs in 15-16 and 16-17, so we look at it differently, and it's obviously yeah. an overwhelming success for this run with those two guys. But for a while there, it looked like this might be their only cup. Yeah, that's a that's a great one. Like, And so one of the things, um, I, I did a story in November on Sidney Crosby, and just we were doing a lot of end-of-decade stuff, and it was just a look at his decade. And I talked to Max Talbot for that, and he said, after this series – there was a, a time, I think it was him, Malkin, and Sid, or a couple of teammates were just, they're on vacation at a pool in Mexico, and they're all just talking, you know, about how many cups they were going to win, right? Like, he just had this, he's like, we just thought we were going to win four or five cups, right? You win, the, you go to the cup final, you lose, you, then you break through and you win. You're still really, really young as a core, and they thought it, I think we all thought it, we're like, okay, this is this is it, and um, that would have been a great take. Like, enjoy this, Penguins fans. You don't know, you know, don't take it for granted. And, you know, the flip side would be, hey, a, a great take would be like, we might have, this might have, we might be watching the end of an era with the Red Wings, right? right? Yeah. Well, it's, yeah, it's, it, would have, it would have been like, wow, we need more defensemen who can pass the puck. <laughs> right, right, right. Hey, let's work in some mobility on the D. Yeah. Um, okay, so the final one. And we're not going to do, we're not do Apex slash Peak Mountain because I don't think anyone involved in this game was necessarily at their Apex. Oh, I disagree. Really? Who do you have? It's Max Talbot. Max, like, well, when, okay, yeah, this yeah. is Max Talbot's Apex Mountain game. Right. Yeah. I just meant in terms of, like, the stars. Yeah, of course, Max Talbot. Yeah. So, like, if I'm, like, who is at their I mean, peak you could hours? Argue, you could argue, like, Marc-Andre Fleury. It's funny because he was better in the postseason mm. the year before, but just in terms but, of, like, game six, seven, like, it's probably what he'll go down remembered for, right? Franzen might, might be at his peak in this yeah. moment. 
Well, Datsuk probably was. He wasn't in this series because he missed his first four games. But like that 07-09 range where like it felt like he maximized his defensive abilities with the Selkie, but also like he was like a top five scorer in the league as well. Yeah, um, I would say Dan Bilesma. So, like what? Like or Mike Babcock? You could argue in theory. I mean, well, I, no, I would say Apex for Mike is the Olympics. So Malkin, 2011-12 was probably his best individual regular season, but this two-year run he had was just like insane, right? So 07-08, 102 games, 57 goals, 128 points, including regular season playoffs. The yeah. following year during this cup run, 106 games, 49 goals, 149 points. He wins the Art Ross. He wins the Conn Smythe. He is the best player in this series. He uh-huh. is so good. I mean, we talk about Fedotenko and, and Talbot. Like, he could have had 20 assists in this series. Like, there were yeah. so many times he just served the puck up to them on a silver platter for a scoring chance. It was just insane to watch him play. Jordan Stahl? You could argue this is Probably. his Probably, yeah. Yeah? Well, a lot of All these right. guys we're talking about, it's like, oh, they're early 20s. It's like, hmm, yeah, maybe, this is, when 20. maybe this is when guys peak. <laughs> Possibly. <laughs> All, right. All right, not bad for a category we're not going to do. All right, well, last one. Well, who won the game? I think it's it's got to be Evgeny Malkin, yeah. right? Mm, uh, so we debated. I mean, T- Talbot again could win every category. If you, I think, um, I think Mark Andre Fleury wins the game, or, or Talbot or Fleury. Okay, but in the Fleury in makes big... this makes one of the great the most the greatest saves you'll ever yes. see yeah. in the final moments, and he kept the team in it for the first half. Like from a big picture perspective, Malkin hilariously does not get named as one of the hundred best players in NHL history. You go back and watch this. He's the best player in a series with Sidney Crosby, Henrik Zetterberg, Pavel Datsuk, Marian Hossa, Nicholas Lidstrom, all still not necessarily at their prime, but close enough to it that it's like an argument. And he's clearly the best, most physically dominant player in that, in that series. All right. Well, you said the game, not serious. Yeah, yeah. I just meant I mean, from like a great big picture game. perspective. Yeah, I would still yeah. argue in this in this game, it's got to be Talbot or Flurry. All right, Craig. Well, we're going to put a pin in this. I think we uh, I think we covered this game justice. Um, I think, so I think we covered it all. So go check out um, the article we talked about that Craig wrote if you want to get more physical, visible anecdotes. Um, hopefully, you enjoy this. We'll do many more of these, Craig. Um, thanks for doing this. Do you want to plug some stuff quickly before we get out of here? Uh, no, I, well, I would just definitely say <laughs> no. if you enjoyed this, well, no, but yes, um, do the, um, the athletic has, has a 90 day free trial. So really nice. low entry barrier for not a subscriber to the athletic. So go check out the story, go to the athletic.com and, and check that out. Uh, check out my podcast, the full 60, um, that I just stole the, the idea, Dimitri's format and mm. did it myself. Nice. Um, I wish I would call it like PDO something to even be more um, <laughs> brazen about PDO it. PDO sixty, yeah. <laughs> PDO sixty, and uh, and that's it. All right. And well, actually, a- no, one more. Might as well go yeah. buy the book behind the bench because I watched Absolutely. this game with Dan Bilesma. That's one of the chapters. So, and it was fascinating to, to watch it from his perspective. And go back in the archives of the PDO cast and listen to me and Craig uh, deep dive that book. That was one of my favorite. Oh yeah, that's ever. right. Definitely. Um, do that. This is a blast, man. I'm glad we got to talk about hockey again. Hopefully, we were pro- we um, gave people a nice little reprieve from from the real world. And uh, it was good to have you back on the show. So thanks, man. It's uh, yeah. it's good to check in, and we'll hopefully we'll be able to chat soon. It was awesome. Thanks for having me, Dimitri. Before we get out of here, I just wanted to thank everyone for listening to today's episode of the Hockey PDO Cast. Hopefully, you enjoyed the walk down memory lane with Craig and I as much as we did. It was a blast to go back and watch this game and 
put together this podcast and I'm hoping that we're going to do many more of these. I think we're going to have some time here in our hands to fill. And since there's no current games going on, I figured this would be the best way to kind of make do with what we have and, and fill in as an alternative. So hopefully you guys enjoy the format. Uh, I want this to be a collaborative thing. So please, if you have any ideas for future categories or games you'd like to see, uh, we're taking suggestions and we're going to try to get to it all. Um, and I appreciate the patience while we iron out the format. It was the first time we're doing something like this. And I think as we go along, we'll get better and better and sort of uh, the transitions and the actual categories themselves will get neater and tighter. And so I'm looking forward to that. And one final thing, if you want to show the podcast some love and help support us during this time, uh, that would really go a long way. And we really appreciate it for myself. Um, go leave a rating review, um, share the show on social media, tell people about it. Uh, if you think there's someone out there in your life that needs some entertainment, uh, enjoys hockey, but doesn't listen to the show yet, uh, we're, we'd love to get some new listeners and we're going to be keep doing the show at least once a week for this entire break. So looking forward to coming back and doing Leafs Bruins 2013 game seven. Uh, it was four one as it's known, uh, with Chris Johnston. He was at the game cover. And so we're really going to dive into that and have a blast with that. And then we've got a bunch of other games planned for the future. So look out for that. So yeah, um, go rate review, subscribe, download, listen, tell people about it and keep checking back in. And in the meantime, uh, I highly recommend going on YouTube and watching this game. Uh, it wasn't particularly entertaining in terms of like being the best played game as Craig and I talked about, but just diving back into that atmosphere and reliving it all over again was such a good distraction uh, for what's going on right now. And I think we could all use that. So hopefully the game can provide that distraction. Hopefully this podcast was a nice little reprieve from uh, the sad reality we're currently living in. And hopefully all of you out there are staying safe, washing your hands, uh, not taking needless risks and going out and endangering yourself and those around you. And we're going to get through this and there's going to be a lot more new hockey on the horizon, but for now we're going to go back and enjoy the classics. So thanks for listening and we'll be back next week. Twitter at Dim Filipovich and on SoundCloud at soundcloud.com slash hockey PDOcast.